Hi and welcome to the fifth episode of Sweetman Podcast. Sorry about the little break that we had there for those of you that have been listening in order. Uh, we had a couple of weeks off. Um, but we're back with the first international episode of Sweetman Podcast. Uh, I was over in, in Sydney for a few days and managed to turn that into a into a work trip in a sense by catching up with Stuart Coop who's an Australian uh, music writer. He's he's uh, talked to everyone, been in the business a long time. He's former manager of Paul Kelly, he's worked in um, PR, he's uh, hung out with bands, he's toured with bands, he's been a promoter, he still runs, works with a record label. Um, he'll talk about all of these things but the main thing he's talking about is his Brand, fairly much brand new book about Michael Gadinsky, the godfather of the Australian and in fact Australasian music industry. So hopefully this is of a lot of interest to Kiwis as well as Australians. Um, Gadinsky worked with Split Ends, The Swingers, had, had some tie-ins with Flying Nun, uh, lots of Kiwi musicians uh, know him and of course he's the, uh, you know, he runs Mushroom Publishing and Frontier Touring so they have a big presence in New Zealand as well. Uh, so I got to talk to Stuart about all of that, about Michael Gadinsky, and also we talked about his career in music journalism. So uh, stick around for the second half of the chat where he gets into some, some great stories about people he's met, uh, friends that he's made, uh, the way that he does interviews. We got to talk about music fandom and just generally have a giant big sort of music geek session. Uh, it, was, it was a really great chat. I had met Stuart one other time before, so I sort of almost cold called him on this, just sent him a message and said, you know, I'm coming over, I'd like to catch up, can we do this? And and uh, it was like catching up with an old friend, it was it was great, and I hope you enjoy this, which is the fifth episode, chatting with Stuart about his book and music journalism. Congrats on the book. Thank I've, you. I've only just finished reading it, uh-huh. um, yeah. just on the flight over. I sort of timed it so that I'd have it as much in mind as I could. Um, so I guess we, we, we could start talking about the book. And then I want to talk a bit more about how you got to the book, mm-hmm. and then we can go back to talking about the book because we might as well do a big ad for it. And you and you must be in right and well, right in book pushing mode. I was going to say you're probably nearing the end of the big I'm, glut of. Publicity. I'm nearing the end of what I think's been like seventy or eighty wow. interviews. Yep. Um, reviews are still coming. Reviews have really just started. Yes. There was a great one in the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age yesterday. So I read that, yeah. Predominantly up till now. Is it, is it Michael Dwight? Michael yeah, Dwight, I read yeah. That, yeah. So up until this point it's really been me telling people why they should buy. Mm. So I was actually very nervous about um, about Michael's review to the point that I got up I think it went online at twelve fifteen oh, yeah, in the I morning. I was that. I was online at twelve twenty, cheeky, yeah. Uh, yeah. because you know it's one thing for me to go and spruik it and do all that showbiz stuff, but it's another thing to have people whose taste you respect and yeah. who know the area to, to talk about it. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I mean, it also gives you a a newfound respect for what you and I go through all the time, which is talking to Rockstar X, who has probably done 15 interviews that day, and when you ask them, how's the new record going, sometimes they're less enthusiastic than others. Yeah, yeah, and you have to, I mean, I had, uh, yeah, I had one go at that where I did a book a couple of years ago and I got interviewed a bunch of times and I recognised myself repeating the stories in the way that I 
knew that some of the musicians I'd talked to must have been you, you, <laughs> doing you, that. You, you know that you've done too many, and I kind of hit it for a brief period about a week ago, and I'm yeah. fine now. Yeah. You know, you've, you've hit the wall when you're in the middle of, in the case of the Michael Gadinsky book, either the anecdote about the Rolling Stones or Carly <laughs> Minogue, yeah. and you're going, did I just tell this person the same story five minutes ago, yeah, or yeah. was it the interview yeah, before? Yeah, yeah, and wow. when you can't answer that question in a millisecond in your head. How many, what was the most interviews you've done in a, a day on this No, I did, um, I, there was a couple of days when I was doing around 15 a wow. day which the, the publicity person I was dealing with uh, who's an old record label person mm. who used to work at Mushroom she said oh you're such a wimp Stuart when I said I could do 15 she said Kylie used to do 25 <laughs> I said well give me 25 and I'll do them yeah. but uh, I, the hardest day was just sitting in a TARDIS booth at the ABC I mean it's great like mm. talking to you because we're face to face but when you're sitting in a small room with no window yeah. in at the ABC and they're just hi, connecting Darwin. you to, Hi, Dubbo. Yeah. Hi. And, of course, they're allocated 20 minutes. And if you're in the middle of a sentence when the 20 minutes is up, the circuit they goes just, and, wow, and you're right. gone. So. so that's quite impersonal, quite... Um, it's, it's, you're just in full sales mode. It's kind of weird. But, look, the thing is, I mean, you spend 18 months, as I did, writing mm. a book about Kedinsky. You've got to go out and sell it. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard enough in the book business as it is. I mean, I went to an interview the other day which involved an hour each way on the train and I was, I mean, I knew things were grim. I had two thoughts that, I mean, on in the two hours on the train, I saw one person holding a real book made mm. of paper mm. and I did not see anyone with a newspaper. Mm. On the other hand, I probably saw more people reading than I've ever read or on public transport yeah, ever. Yeah. But they're all just staring at telephones. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, I'm a convert to the Kindle. You know, I read your book on Kindle, but I, I, I still like to have physical copies of books. But um, it's just a practical thing for me now. You know. Um, does it look okay on a Kindle? <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, it does. It reads really well, and it, you know, there was I didn't spot any mistakes because you do sometimes see them in transfers from Kindles. Yeah, there's some. Um, some formatting glitches come up. You'll get things where, like, uh, the chapter will start at the very bottom of a page. There'll be like a whole blank page, and there'll be two sentences, and then sometimes you'll get like half a page missing. The text is all there, but just formatting. Right. But yours is perfect. Good. So, um, Good. there's your first Kindle review. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, 18 months working on the book. Yeah, 18. Ish. 18, 18 months from probably from start to finish. I, mm. I've always had a theory that no matter how quickly you think a book's going to be to write, they always seem to end up taking at least a year. Mm. And the Gadinsky one was was a bit more fraught with problems than other things I've done, partly because he was so resistant. actively didn't want a book. Yeah. Uh, and I'd been, you know, I'd been talking to him about this for over a decade since mm. my book, The Promoters, came out in 2003. And he just, I still actually don't know, Simon, why he doesn't want a book. Mm. You know, I, I, I can So never... even talking it through and all the interviews and stuff, no. you haven't had a moment I, you've No, gone, I mean, I, I, I initially thought he was cautious about how, shall we euphemistically put it, the lifestyle aspect of, mm-hmm. of his, mm-hmm. his world. And I told him very early on that, A, I wasn't, interested in writing another sex, drugs and rock and roll book 
also that not only could I spell defamation, but I knew what it meant. <laughs> so I kind of, and, and then, then I thought that maybe, and it's still something that having had some of his feedback, mm. I thought that maybe he's nervous the fact that, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, he's not perfect. Yeah. And he hasn't got everything right. You know, I know that he's really unhappy about the Kylie Minogue chapter mm-hmm. because he's not front and centre. Mm-hmm. Now, he wasn't front and centre. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so it, was, it was a time-consuming process because when I, when I find, look, I made the decision to write it after over a decade. Yeah. I thought he is the most powerful, influential and significant figure in the Australian, whether you'd say Australasian, you know. I but, think so, yeah. yeah. Certainly the Australian, but, yeah. I, I, you know, his presence has felt... And, in New Zealand. And, and so, and I thought, it's not only f- Michael Gadinsky's life, it, it's 50 years of, of rock and popular mm. music culture. And also, towards the point where I said, look, this has just got to be done, a couple of people that he was close to and I was close to passed away. And I also went, again, you're just a reminder that we're all getting a little bit older. The lifestyles that have been led are not conducive yeah. to longevity. Yeah. And a lot of these stories, um, you know, particularly in Smith, who is one of the people the book's dedicated to, I mean, you know, an astonishing character. And he, you know, he had cancer and he wanted to talk to me. And then he just didn't, you know, his, the illness progressed to a rate where he didn't get to, to talk to me. Mm. And um, so... So I told Gadinsky, look, I'm, I'm doing a book about you. And of course, I'm like, I don't want a book. There's going to be no book. And for the first sort of eight months, every person pretty much that I called up said, is it authorised? Yeah. And I said, well, no. And they said, well, we'd better talk to Michael because mm. Michael is so powerful mm, that mm. people are terrified no, of No talking. one wants to cross him. No, <laughs> yeah, not yeah. in the slightest. Yeah. And so, of course, they'd call him and he'd, you know, mumble, no book, no, you know, don't. Mm. Uh, and, then, and then it was really my... That didn't deter me. I just realised it was going to be a bit more difficult because my publisher, Matthew Kelly, said, look, can we write a book if the shutters go down? Mm. And I said, yes, we can. Um, It's just a slightly different book. It's a different book. Yeah. And then what happened was that I contacted a woman by the name of Michelle Higgins, who you would have read about in the book too, barricaded herself at the Seville townhouse when, um, when she wanted... Kadinsky to resign Paul yeah, Kelly. Yeah. And she lives in upstate New York. I mean, she just said, Stuart, I agree with you. It's such an important story. It needs to be told. And she was the first person to say the words I wanted to hear. I'm not going to check with him. I'll talk to yeah. you. So from there, it was kind of a bit of a domino effect because Michelle had such an, it was so well known. So then like Amanda Perlman said, I'll talk to you. Um, Gary Ashley, who worked as Gadinsky's mm. right-hand man for 25 years, said, I'll talk to you. Simon Young, who was a finance guy for 18 years, said, I'll talk to you. Boom, boom, boom. And, of course, all of these people, are, and me included, are letting Gadinsky know. I was just going to say, this is getting back oh, to him. We're making sure yeah. that he knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, so he, he's, his next softening was to not get in the way of me talking to people that are currently employed and around him, mm-hmm. such as, you know, Frank Stavala, who has been his longest associate, uh, they go back over 40 years, mm. Philip Jacobson, a.k.a. the old man, who's the main financial yep. wheeler and dealer, and, and some people like that. Then he got to the point where he he agreed to sit for... 
in the whole scheme of the book, I mean, we had dinner in Melbourne one night for three hours. I went up to the Hunter Valley with him to see a Rod Stewart concert and I got to ask questions in between him. Got to go talk to Rod, got to go and see James Ryan, yeah. got to do this, got to do yeah. that. Yeah, I drove back with him and then I got, because um, I really wanted the opening chapter information, the Rolling Stone stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. But he didn't, that, that was the sum total of Michael's direct involvement. Then I probably spoke to him more when the book was pretty much finished because I right. did give him, I said, you can read it for factual errors at no point will I entertain any... Editorial decisions. decisions. Yeah. Nothing, you, you, we're not going to rewrite history yeah. here. Yeah. You know, these are my interpretations, this is my... But if you've got a name wrong, that's... If you've got a name and wrong, And he, he's going to correct you. And I, yeah. when, when initially, you know, we spent a lot of time on the phone, there were a lot of communications between Hachette's, my publisher's mm-hmm. lawyers, they had about 25 pages of things they recommended that I didn't say. <laughs> yeah. Um, Gadinsky's lawyers had about 20 pages of things that they didn't think I should say. In the end, I was actually pleased that you put the 45 pages together and the deletions or changes to the text didn't impact on the story I wanted to tell, funnily enough, nearly as much as they did on the promoters. Book. Yeah, yeah. So, and when Michael, when I went through the list of stuff that came from Gadinsky's side, when I realised that probably out of 20 pages, only three of them pertained to factual matters, um, I felt fairly good about what I'd done as research. Mm. And, you know, we had some funny moments. I mean, the, the, the classic ones were um, literally the day it was due to go to the printers because everything was stalled because Michael would ring up and go, hey, you know, I'm, you know, look, I think you should look at this from a different perspective. And I go, no, I've looked at it from the perspectives that, and they are multiple perspectives that are going to be looked at from, mm. and, and I'm done here. But there were a lot of communications. And um, then then on the day we were going to the printers, I actually wasn't well, and I was lying in bed here, and Gineski's uh, lawyer rings. And this is where it became surreal. Mm. Uh, Chris said... Michael's got, is this, I've been on the phone to Michael a few hours earlier. He's got things he needs to talk to you about. Can you delay today? And my publisher was like at his wit's end. And, mm. But it was agreed that we, and the, and the lawyer said, look, he's flying back to Melbourne. He's left London. He will get to Dubai at 2.30 this afternoon. He will ring you. Wow. And uh, we said, okay, 2.30 is fine. We'll give him till 3.30. If he yeah. doesn't ring by 3.30, you know, we don't care if the plane's late. Like, we, you know, this has to go off to, mm. to go through all the processes that books go through. So a bit after 2.30, Gadinsky does call on his mobile phone, as always, from Dubai Airport. Mm. And it was just fantastic. This will live with me forever. Mate, you know, look, you know, some stuff i got to talk to you about. And this is how it went down. Look, you know, page 57. You know, the Jaguar I bought in 1973. <laughs> Look, I did, but, you know, you got it all wrong. It, it was years before I bought a new car. It was second hand. Can you change it? <laughs> okay, okay, we've waited for this. Right? And then, and then he goes, Look, you know, and, and when we were up watching Rod Stewart, you know, it was the first game of the season, you know, I said some things about St Kilda, you know, and like his favourite football, yeah. football team. He said, I said some things about St Kilda. He said, they're playing a bit better than I thought. Some of the players are going to see this. You know, and what I said, they're going to be gutted. <laughs> you know, can you modify a little bit about, you know. Uh, I just, I'm, I'm literally like, 
I'm not well. I'm going, yeah. am I delirious because I've got yeah, some yeah. virus? <laughs> or am I actually hearing, hold the presses, <laughs> you know, we need him to call from Dubai Airport about the second-hand Jaguar and... Some football players. His, <laughs> his pre-season or early-season perspective on his footy team. So in that, Simon, I, I went, okay, like, you know, then I went, because he really didn't challenge anything much factual at all. He certainly had and continues to have, I think, significant issues with, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Carly Minogue chapter. Yeah. I think it was also, he said, oh, you know, you, you listen too much to, to Simon Young and Gary Ashley and these people. And it kind of dawned on me that that would also have been kind of confrontational for him because... Michael has a history of being unbelievably great at hiring really smart, astute, across everything staff. And one thing that I hope comes through in the book is that unlike any other record label I can think of in Australia and possibly internationally, he has a great history of hiring really smart, opinionated, talented Mm. women, Mm. letting them rise to ranks that are unheard of within other record labels. but then he's also not very good at keeping them in the story if they have a falling out with him. Right. And so I, I realised that when he got the manuscript for this book, he was probably for the first time reading the recollections of, in the case of Gary Ashley, someone had been his right-hand guy yeah, for 25 yeah. years. With S- legitimate grievances. Yeah, and, Simon, yeah, Simon Young, 18 years. Mm. And, you know, when Simon Young, for instance, talks about a certain ring of a telephone in London and having a Pavlovian response Mm. because his stomach starts churning Mm. all these years later. I mean, he left in the mid-1990s, but he still says he starts getting, you know, panicky when he hears (laughs) a certain phone ring because it reminds him of Gadinsky ringing from Melbourne to berate him. Uh, He was probably unaware of all of this stuff. And I I guess, um, I mean, I thought... Because one of the things that's been interesting for me, and I'm sure a lot of people that are reading have read the book or will read the book, is that we've sort of got to live a little bit of the story of the writing of the book through you on Facebook, if we know you, Mm. which is really neat. I mean, we got to see, you know, I was telling someone earlier, you know, I got to know about this before I knew exactly what the project was. You were just mentioning... Mm. Um, bands that you were listening to and writing about again and you, there were sort of these nice little pieces of the puzzle mm. oh, forming, forming for us and so um, it's kind of, it almost was a bit of a victory lap or something reading the book like, you, <laughs> you know, know in a way <laughs> bit of a victory but, lap for me having it out but a- absolutely I, but I, I I don't know how conscious I was of it as you know I, I think Facebook if used properly and effectively as you do too I mean is a, is a really amazing um, mm. tool and, and as it went on, I thought, you know, it, it actually took someone commenting, going, we feel like we've gone through the whole process mm. with you. We've seen the manuscript pages. Yeah, we've yeah, seen yeah. the correction stickers. We've seen what the manuscript looks like when you've gone through 1,449 yellow tags and systematically removed them. And I, and I thought that was, I mean, I guess it's adapting to the contemporary world in a way that, you know, Mushroom Records hasn't. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and yeah, Gidinsky, yeah. I mean, th- that office and that setup in 
in Melbourne, I mean, it's barely above pencils and paper. Right. It is so anti-technology. Yeah. I mean, Gadinsky has just got an iPad. Yeah. <laughs> I went into his office one day. His son's teaching him. His son is, is dragging him. Yeah. I mean, it was so funny when I asked him a question one day in uh, in the office, because he can be yeah, very self-deprecating about all this, you know. Mm. And I asked him a question, he looks at me and said, haven't you heard of Google? It's really useful. <laughs> <laughs> and coming back from... Uh, from the Hunter Valley seeing Rod Stewart. I mean, he's literally sitting in the back of the car with his driver up the front, and I'm asking him things, and he's going, oh, I'll Google it and find out. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I realised the massive non-inroad of technology in his world when I'm in his office, and I go over to his desk, and I see a happy snap of him with the Rolling Stones, mm. uh, and it's cellotaped to the front of his computer monitor <laughs> which tells me a couple of things he doesn't turn his computer monitor on very often yeah. <laughs> no one has led him in the direction of this concept called the jpeg or the screensaver or blue tech yeah or anything it's, <laughs> Even. Just, it's just literally taped to <laughs> the top of, to, to the front of his uh his screen. so you know that that's something about the way that that company still does business yeah. Yeah. it's very old school Someone, you know, quite seriously said, Stuart, I've got an email which I know was written by Michael. Mm. I have it framed. <laughs> yeah, it, and it's all direct. They, 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 they email or use electronic communication in the complete reversal to what you and I do. Yeah, yeah. It's telephone first. Yeah. Uh, or face-to-face meeting, if yeah, possible. Yeah. Fallback position is the telephone. Fall back to the fall back to the fall back is oh shit! Can I get someone to type an email because I'm not sure how to do it? <laughs> you know. Whereas yeah, well, I mean we would conduct interviews in some cases over Facebook now. Yeah. I, I know I have. Like it's not sometimes it, it's not your first preference, but actually sometimes it can be into mm. you know for a background thing or you know a pre-interview thing. Sure. Um, I thought finishing the book or well, midway through the book, I thought, and I read a couple of the reviews while I was reading the book and I thought uh, it's kind of, you know, it surprises me not at all that the book is, by my perception, doing very well and being well received because uh, apart from the way you've put it all together um, and navigated through <laughs> through not just legal twists and turns but a complicated story, a lot of different things, it's kind of a um, sort of the great Australian success story in a way, isn't it? Like, you know... Immigrant background, uh, you know, s- slight um, people could paint it as slight gangster vibe associations, music industry, millions oh, it's, of dollars, it's, it's a great story, threatening right? phone calls, you know, and all the late, you know, late nights that stretch on for days. You, I mean, I grew up with a lot of the music that you write about in the book, and so I would have wanted to read it for that even. And I like, I'm sure you do too. I like revisiting music through um you know not just a paul kelly biography but revisiting it through his story through his attachment to gadinsky and and so forth well that was that was one of the chapters that i actually enjoyed writing most because i was paul kelly's manager and and when i read paul's terrific 600 page you know how to make i realized you know there were four references to gadinsky yeah no references to me 
Um, no references to anything to do with business. So mm. that was actually a fun one to write. But look, Gudinski himself, you know, the, the, the godfather was chosen deliberately because yes, of yes. the multitude of yeah. interpretations you can put on um, yeah, yeah. the word godfather. And I was surprised, um, I must admit, when the, uh, when the lawyers were going through it that I was allowed to keep the references to the Sopranos. Mm, mm. Uh, and you know when I asked well that was, it's good for business though isn't it <laughs> well one of my favourite favourite times was being in Melbourne interviewing Frank Stavala and um, and Frank's sort of acquired a very powerful um, individual who doesn't do interviews very often I think people ask to talk to him that often which is a shame because he's been through a lot and uh, and I'd said to Frank, you know, you know you've you've heard all this organised crime, you know, mm. mafia, Sopranos stuff, haven't you, mm. Frank? And he, there was a great moment. I wish I could have captured it. Well, maybe I tried to capture it in the book, but he just his head just turned up from his desk. He said, "Doesn't do any harm, does it?" <laughs> yeah, it was just priceless. I just yeah, yeah. So, but look, Gadinsky himself is just an amazingly fantastic character to write about, and as you say, that that world and the other people around him I mean of course since the book has been finished I'm going okay what's next what else and, mm. and I can't think of I mean I can't imagine that there will be another book written about someone who runs an Australian or New Zealand mm. record label or something because I don't think that there are any no. characters left no. like Gidinski and I think part of Gidinski's charm they're a feature article at best really aren't that's they? it that's you it know? but you see and part of you know the thing about Gidinski is like he is larger than life mm. he is completely unhinged in the nicest possible sense of the word most of the time um, he's very charismatic he's brash he has no attention span but also he came out of the music industry in an era where it was before anybody really looked back. Mm. You know, we hadn't started to look back at the unfairness or otherwise of record contracts or publishing contracts. We hadn't done, we were, we were pre-doing the studies of how the record labels and the music industry had evolved and getting a fix on what had been done well, what hadn't been done well. We were a long way away from looking at how, in some cases, to protect artists mm. from themselves and from the fame that that they were catapulted into. There, were, there was, you know, we were even within the music. Um, there weren't, you know, the the conscious sort of nostalgia fests and um, and the the sort of recycling of fads. You know, the like the music was, sur you know, there were influences, but. It was surging on, and it was just there. There were no rules. I mean, we, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, the other day I was reminded that it's thirty-eight years since Elvis died. Mm. But conversely, when Gedinsky started Mushroom Records, a he was only nineteen, which I find quite remarkable. <laughs> I mean, it, it always makes me think of Tom Wolfe's description of Phil Spector as the first tycoon of teen, mm, you know, mm. and he was not inexperienced at nineteen, mm, mm. Um, but. Also, you know, rock and roll, if we date it at 56, was actually not, and I do, because that's the year mm. I was born, mm. so mm. me and rock and roll have hung out together always, uh, but if we dated at 56, I mean, we're not two decades into, you know, we're mm. say 17 mm. years into mm. the history of rock and roll, so it's comparatively early. Yeah, yeah. No rules, no science, um, no notion of 
you know, like no one ever had marketing meetings in those days or did that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I also thought why I sort of think of it is, is him being this great Australian uh, success story and, and, and almost uh, folk hero type, you know, which Australia sort of has its, you know, plenty throughout the history. But, uh, you know, I sort of thought here's this guy who, you know, clearly was has become... Um, fixated with cracking America and 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 everywhere really, but also um, proved that it was good enough and, and and worthy enough to just crack Australia. That that was something like that to me seemed an important part of his story. That didn't stop the drive to to achieve even bigger than that. But but he sort of saw and felt that there was enough opportunity in Australia to make something big and lasting. Yeah, and and he's always said that his his and his business's history would probably have been dramatically different mm. if he had relocated. Mm. Um, but so Ma- Michael has been consistently, and you know, an obsessive flag waver for Australasian mm. music. I mean, he's had his fair share of New Zealand, you know, artists. Yeah, then, you know, split ends, obviously most split ends. But then you know, the association with Flying Nun. Yep, um, and, and the swingers. And so yeah, so. Um, but in some ways, you almost narrow it down. I mean, one of the things that I, I've, you know, I've had lots of great moments writing this book. One of them was, was driving with him in Melbourne the night we were off to have dinner, and he was outlining some plans he has for Melbourne and entertainment and mm. all that kind of stuff. But he just he got very quiet, and, uh, and he, said, um, he said, Melbourne's been really good to, for, to me. Mm. And then he just paused and he said, and I've been really good for Melbourne. <laughs> and uh, so, but, you know, because it's easy to forget also that, with the exception of Dave Warner, who was from Perth, I mean, he didn't sign on Stars, who came from, from Adelaide. I mean, he didn't sign a Sydney band until 1980. Mm. You know, it was a long time down the track mm. uh, be- before he, he ventured out like that. But, yeah, look, it, Australian music is... His thing, of course, with the touring company and his other offshoot labels dealing with international releases, he's done that. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's just a ferociously passionate um, supporter of Australian music. And, and what I, what, one of the things I love about Michael is that he uh, could be Gadinsky flying overseas <laughs> as, as that plane goes overseas. I mean, he still travels like, you know, he'll get, he's overseas 20 times. I do sometimes think every time a plane goes over, oh, <laughs> hi, Michael, see ya. Um, but, um, I mean, he's in his early 60s, and, and, and two things recently summed up where Michael comes from as an individual, I think. I'm doing my radio show here at FBI Radio one Tuesday, and, and I look down at my mobile, it rings, and it's turned down, like I see it ring, and I see, you know, Gadinsky's name come up on the phone. So... I'm doing a radio show, shooting back a text saying, hey, on the radio, I'll call you when I'm finished. Mm. And within 10 seconds, there's a text back from him just going, play the Rubens. Now, there is current <laughs> fixation, right. right? So it's just play the Rubens. And I get, finish the show, get off, go and ring him. And he doesn't even say hello. He said, did you play the fucking Rubens? <laughs> yeah, uh, and, uh, that's Michael. And then another... And another, did you? 
No, it was a cover <laughs> version of the show. I couldn't. But then a couple of weeks later, of course, it was in my head. Yeah. <laughs> and I and uh, and then I, I did pull out the tribute to Huddersfield Collectors, which mm. had a Rubens track on it. Yeah. So he he got his way. Yeah, yeah. You know, he planted the seed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I probably you know maybe I wouldn't have played that song or that cover on the show otherwise. Yeah. And then another day towards the end of the book, you know, he he rang me from, you know, I mean. I had more calls from overseas than I did from him in Melbourne. So he mm. rings from LA airport mm. on his mobile to tell me that he's going to give me the Rolling Stones information that I wanted. But that took about 20 seconds of the conversation. The rest of it was just about how he had just spent an hour <laughs> with Taylor Swift. Right. And he was at pains to point out it was just him and Taylor in the room together. And that, and I all I heard was both with the Rubens and with the Taylor Swift conversations, I heard the guy that hadn't read the memo that said that he was no longer a 14-year-old fan yeah. who was just passionately yeah. in love with the first records that he ever bought. I mean, he, in both cases, he was like, you know, with great affection, a gibbering idiot, mm. you know, mm. and, and he just... So the thing that I, I... One of many things that I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not a card-carrying president of the Michael Gudinski fan club. But, I, you know, I, I, you know, I adore the guy and I have an enormous amount of respect for yeah. a real lot of what he's done. But... Um, well, that comes across in the book too, in the, yeah. way, in the way that you tell his story and, and not just because you, you know, you got to see bits of it as it was happening, obviously, you know, through your association with music writing and with the acts and I, I being to, around. I had to write... You know, a book that, I mean, you don't spend that amount of time working on something unless you, I mean, I, I had to be able to finish off this book and go, hey, I'm comfortable with this. This is my take on Michael's story. And people said, look, how, you know, you, you're potentially going to ruin your friendship. You know, we're not close friends, but we're certainly, mm. I would call Michael a friend. Mm. And I went, well, yeah, but this is you know maybe I'm I thought it was a more important it was more important than risking the friendship and yeah. I kind of went this story's got to be tough we won't forget Inski no one's ever going to write it and yeah. he ain't going to write it himself so so there was the issue of going okay I'm just going to put it on the line and, and, I, and I called him I said look Michael you know I can give you a list of people who like you a lot less than me <laughs> who can write mm. you know, do you want me to email it to Vanessa in the office you know mm. I said you're bloody lucky that you've got me because you finally realize that you actually can't stop a book mm. you know I can't stop you writing a book about me you can't stop me writing a book about you, Simon. As long as we get the facts right, you know, that's mm. the thing. And, and also, look, I didn't want to, and I said this to him, I said, look, you know, I don't want to write a book where everyone goes, oh, I wonder how much Gadinsky paid him. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, look at this. You know, he's rewritten history. Oh, here he is. He's got Michael discovering Kylie. You know, he's got Michael doing this. He's got Michael walking on water. I said, you can walk on water for 180 pages, not mm. 170, pal. You know, on top of that. Well, I, li I like the way that we're reminded of the... It's sort of always the way with, with fantastic and fascinating stories and, and these big characters, isn't it? That their they're relative... Um, failings and the things that they get wrong become the re 
big interesting parts within the story. The and he's then, had he's had a hand in the in the careers of so many Australian acts, and then there were some of the really big names. He either they either slipped through his fingers or he did he didn't rate them. Yeah, and he and, and the thing is, you know, I've said this to him, and I'll keep saying it to anyone. He shouldn't have a problem with that. Yeah, you know, and that's that fascinates me as much as anything that it does gnaw at him. Mm, mm. You know, as someone says in the Carly chapter, John Watson, I think, um, he said. He should be happy taking the credit for being the guy who had the smarts to hire the woman who had the smarts to sign Kylie. Yeah. You know, and when when you are Michael Gidinski and as you say, you know, from Skyhooks to Split Ends to Hunters and Collectors to Paul Kelly to the Models to Kylie to Jimmy Barnes, let's not even go down the publishing company. Let's not talk about um, Wolf Creek and the Chopper Reed movie and all of the things that his film company has made or the thousands of tours that Frontier has done. I mean, you you kind of got to be going, shit, that's not bad, is it? Yeah, yeah. But exactly. it is fascinating that those little other things, little, you know, I mean, he he um, he he rang me about the uh, the sale to Rupert Murdoch, which for yeah. me was one of the more fascinating things in the yeah, book yeah. to actually try and unravel what went down there, because you know, unlike say the history of Skyhooks and some of the other things that are in there, you know, that hadn't really been tackled before. And the more I delved into it, the more fascinating I found it to be. But, you know, again, he was, he just, there were little things that I knew bugged him. You know, he, he called me up and he said, look, you know, you've, you've got to understand that, you know, there's something that's missing in the book. And I go, okay, what's missing, Michael? He said, look, you know, I had two meetings with Rupert Murdoch by myself before Gary Ashley and Alan Healy came to that meeting. Yeah. And I went, you know, again, the subtext of the conversation, <laughs> the you, the words by myself yeah, yeah. before, you know, were, mm. were telling me... I was there first and yeah, it was only yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was, yeah. yeah. And they go, okay, can you assure me that that's the case? Because if that is... You know, cross my heart. You know, true. That I will consider that a factual error. Mm. You know, and and I'll work that into the text. You know, that's okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's those. Yeah, you know, I mean. So part, you, yeah. you you were um, a, a a decade-ish between books. It was more than that. Yeah, two thousand and three, yeah. uh, and and this one. So it's twelve years through. I became very immersed in Laughing Outlaw Records, yeah. uh, which started in 1999. So I kind of took a break to to write the promoters, and you know, Laughing Outlaw now has released you know over 200 records. I mean, I, I initially got involved thinking, you know, I'd always thought that writer's block was what lazy people did mm. until I actually had it, and I just would sit for a, I sat for a few months of staring at a screen, and so I thought, oh, the opportunity to you know, I, it wasn't my idea to start laughing out loud, but I quickly became the focal point of it. Um, that uh, that I'd do it for a year tops, and then mm. I'd get back to writing. So that's kind of what I knew how to do. Mm. Uh, I had no idea that we'd get to two thousand and fifteen, and I'd still be running a record label. Um, and also, I probably that there'd even still be record labels. Well, either, I mean, I you know I predicted the demise of the CD and everything like six years ago. Yeah, and yeah. The, the damn things are still hanging around. <laughs> um, but I, um, I, I had the niggling thing about Gadinsky, but I you know, but it was just like every time I saw him, no, um, <laughs> not you know, yeah. I've got 
um, here a copy of the big hardback 30 years of Frontier Touring. Oh, the poster book. Yeah, yeah. And, and he signed it to me after he came and did uh, a thing on FBI radio with me. You know, and, he, and, and he says, you know, in the inscription, this is the closest you will ever get to a book about me. <laughs> I think, did I quote it in the book? I yeah, think yeah, I might yeah, have yeah, done yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and I guess, Simon, there, there was a little bit of a what is there to write about you know i had other ideas i mean I, I still want to write a book about airline pilots for instance um but my enthusiasm for the airline pilot is a book length because there's no books about airline pilots that i'm aware of books about entire books about you know um airports mm. you know, one of my favorite books is a history of jfk airport mm. um so I, but yeah, my interests didn't meet with a publisher who well, saw, saw the similar vision. Two, two sort of questions and tangents here was, the first one was, um, you've completed this book and obviously you completed it a while ago, like it's, it's recently been published, so you're actual, you're still in the publicity circle and you're still living with it and it'll be a while before you fully let this book go, but has the experience of doing this book and the, the so far positive reception of it, does that make you think you'll be a bit quicker oh, yeah. in writing I mean, another I'm, book? I'm, Were you sort of bitten by the bug again? And I'm so itching. Yeah. I mean, I really... I was very nervous about this because it's a living subject. Yes. It's only... It's a powerful subject. It's a divisive subject. I copped a fair bit of stuff on Facebook from people including someone who's actually put up a public apology this afternoon for their attitude to what I was doing. Really? I missed that. Um, you'll see it when yeah, you get yeah, back. Yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, um, you know, and people said, you, you, God, you, 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 you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, if, if you don't carve him up, um, the world's going to think it's a whitewash yeah. job. If you carve him up, you know the cliche you'll never work in this town again yeah, yeah. you know and people ask me that a lot of time i said i actually don't rely on michael gudinski for what passes as a as a livelihood yeah um so yeah i was very nervous to get the balance right there is as my wife said compared to the promoters there is a ridiculous amount of factual stuff in this book yeah you know i, I was trying to get a I was trying to hear Gadinsky as I wrote. It took a long time to get what my publisher kept saying, get a voice. And, you know, every day I'd probably write for an hour before I got into the headspace where I thought I was thinking like I think Michael Gadinsky thinks if he does think. And and I tried to get the staccato, you know, this is Michael in rant mode feel to it. Um, But then, of course, yes, to look to have it come out and touch wood... Um, to not be, you know, castigated, <laughs> or, yeah, you know, and to have Michael go, oh, you know. Oh, so, oh. what has what feedback have you have you heard from his camp since the book's been published? I, I was thinking that I haven't actually heard much directly from his camp. He rang me about three three weeks ago. He said, "How are you going?" I said, I'm good. I said, I'm fucking sick of talking about you, though. Yeah. I, said, yeah, I heard you've been doing a bit. Um, he said that Mary Bainbridge, who's his longest-serving right-hand organiser of things, Michael, had read it and really liked it. And I think for, Michael 
couldn't and possibly still can't decide whether he thinks it's a good book or a not good yeah. book. He doesn't sort of know, which is a bit consistent with his approach to A&Ring too. Yeah, he, yeah. he listens for the vibe. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that Mary had said that she really likes it meant that the vibe... And a lot of people who he respects, like Michael Dwyer in, yeah. in the Sydney Morning Herald, Christy Eliza, you know, people that he would look to yeah. uh, have been good. He He's very... He's uncomfortable about the Kylie chapter, you know, and yeah. uncomfortable about some of the stuff about uh, about the Murdoch sales. They're the things that he's expressed um, mainly to, and he doesn't like the cover, right? Yeah, which was, uh, a it's in his football club colours, uh, and uh, <laughs> given that he didn't provide any better options for photos or yeah. other, you know, um, I think it it works he's he's also fantastic because if i need him to to get him motivated mm. you know some things with these guys never change i just have to mention michael chugg's book yeah there you go <laughs> and i said michael you, you know this cover's good we need to sell as many as chuggy's book or more how many do you sell <laughs> yeah and i give him a figure i inflated by ten thousand. you go all right um so yeah, no. I'd, I'd look. I'm. I'd love to to do another book. I'm. You know. I literally. Yes. You're. You're spot on. I'm. Uh, I'd. St- I mean. Yes. This. This will linger for a while. But yeah. I'm totally and happily, obviously. Happily at yeah. this. I mean, I really didn't know. I mean, no. I. I really. I was so well served by the promoters, by you know all of my people who I respect. Mm. Uh, but this one I was really unsure. I mean, I, I was not making it up when I couldn't sleep on Friday night and I sort mm. of half dozed mm. and my body clock said, I reckon the Sydney Morning Herald's up online now wow. and the age. And I was sitting here at 12.23 as mm. I posted. Go, oh, fuck, thank goodness for that, <laughs> you know. Um, one thing I thought must have been interesting was I saw your photo on Facebook that one of your interviews was with Red from the um, Skyhooks. Yeah. And how, what was that like? Because he's not much of a fan of Gadinsky in the book. No. And, or how has his opinion changed and what did he think I, of the book? I, he, he was very funny. He, he was... Um, he was great because I, I went down to Melbourne and it was a really early start to do his breakfast, his morning mm. show, breakfast show on um, on ABC in Melbourne and uh, I'm sitting in the green room and I'm actually nervous about Red because Red's very smart, very opinionated mm. And, mm. and, you know, I don't get faced too often by these sort of things where I go, shit, what does Red think? What is Red? And, and he just walks out of, this, out of this, the studio at one point, he comes up to me. I'm half as you know. I, I got into my hotel room at one o'clock that morning because of a late flight from Sydney. Yeah, and he just comes up to me, Stuart. How do you feel about getting fucked over by the media again? <laughs> and I went, Oh God, here we go. What? And I went, What? <laughs> he said, This is too good a story to go on at six. You know, at quarter to quarter to six in the morning. He said, Can you stay for another hour? We'll do it in prime time, which is really sweet of him. That was great. Yeah. But I was going, oh, <laughs> You're going, shit, where's oh, this going? <laughs> yeah, how do you feel? I've been fucked over by the media. And, um, and then, uh, no, and I still don't know what he thinks, because he, he, re- he hasn't touched his copy. Right. I walked in, and I could see that it hadn't been even thumbed. Wow. And he said, oh, and I said, what do, you, what do you think? He said, I'm in it. He said this to me, I'm in it. Why would I read it? I'm not going to read it. <laughs> so I, I honestly, uh, don't know what uh, Red thinks. I'm trying to think. I mean, mainly what I've heard from is 
is other music writers. I've heard from a lot of business people, like I've heard great things from Paul Kelly's manager, yeah. uh, from Rod Willis, who managed Cold Chisel for a thousand years. And I said to Willis, I said, you know, um, hope I got the chisel stuff right. And he said, oh, I suppose you want me to buy a copy. But he said, the bits I read in the bookshop, he said, you're spot on with mm. that. You know, so I, I, I'm getting... I'm getting. I had a lovely um, Facebook message yesterday from from Jenny or Jen, Jen Jewel Brown. Mm. Uh, was one of Australia's great, you know, journal, music journalists from from way back, and uh, and a pioneering woman journalist in this country. And I, and I used her Skyhooks book, you know, a lot for that Skyhook section. Mm. Um, and Erda was fantastic. She said, "Plenty of minor points, Stuart, but um, the Daily Planet and the Planet." They didn't use the. They were Daily Planet and Planet. I thought that was kind of cute. I mean, yeah, I like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that sort of that sort of stuff. And also, I'm going. You know, sure, with a great sense of humility and and relief, I'm going. Okay, well, if they're the things that people are picking up on, then you know, they they're not telling me that. You know, there wasn't a second sale to Murdoch, mm. or that. You know, and I, I had, I had moments myself. I knew it was at the printers, and just when you start to, I mean, I was there. I was his goddamn manager, but I'm going, and I literally, I had a moment sitting here where I just went cold. I went, shit, I've got it all wrong. I've got it all wrong, <laughs> and I was, I'd convinced myself that the Michelle Higgins. Paul Kelly story happened because of post right. and not yeah, gossip. Yeah. And I'm going, how could I be so stupid? <laughs> I, I just, I've, I've, I'm going to seem like a, a, a complete idiot. It's going to blow the whole book. You know, I was his manager. That's the one chapter I should get right. <laughs> yeah. Shit, how did I think that she barricaded herself in because of gossip? You know, and I, I just, <laughs> I had a good ah. I just go, tell yourself, it was gossip. It was gossip. It wow. was gossip. So you know. <laughs> so let's um, let's go back a bit. Indulge me here on how you got to this point in in your professional career and how you how you started I mean you said that you're as old as rock and roll you you started you started your life when rock and roll came into being when did you become a rock and roll fan oh from about I have very I must have been very we could probably almost date it by when the Who's I'm a Boy came out, or pretty close. Because I have a very vivid memory of my, of sitting in the first home that I lived in with, you know, with where my mum and dad lived, mm. uh, in Launceston in Tasmania, which, where I come from. And they had a crystal radio, those where you used to attach yep. to the telephone. And I remember I, I won ten singles one night because you had to ring the radio station, which is 70X, which is the the rock station in Launceston, not to be confused with 7LA, which is the more mainstream yep. radio station, and you had to sing a couple of lines from your favourite song, and I sang, I'm a boy, I'm a boy, but my ma won't admit it, I'm a boy, I'm a boy, yep. if I say am, I get it. Uh, and I, of those singles, I've still got... Linda Sue Dixon, Covert for LSD by Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wills, and Stand By Your Man by Tammy Wynette. Mm. Uh, so that's that's about the era when I was... So this is before you're a teenager, this is oh, yeah. before you're 10. Yeah, yeah, but yeah I, was, I was, you know... Seven, eight, nine. I was young. Yeah. Young. Younger than I kind of go, wow. Yeah. But I, you know, they're things I'm just not making up because yeah. they, they actually happen and, and like the first time I had a dollar five or you might have seen I was trying to work out on Facebook where the things mm. were a dollar dollar five or a dollar ten I think we'd sit on a dollar five but other people have said a dollar you know I bought Friday on my mind 
by the Easy Beats. I recently bought Hitwave, um, yeah. Hit, uh, which is the first album that I actually own. I saw it somewhere and I went, oh, I want to have that again. Uh, and it is sitting on top of the turntable there. Uh, yes, it has been been played many yeah. times. Um, so it was, look, it was really that. And, and I also just, I, I, I have no formal training, Simon. I mean, I never finished a university degree. I still type space with one finger, type with the other, but I can almost touch type about 80 words a minute with one finger. Mm. And... Um, I mean, I started my first magazine at school when I was about 14 or 15, which is really just a school magazine, but it was an excuse to write about music. Right. And I was shamelessly copying a guy called Rob Smythe, who I still think is one of the greatest rock critics ever, um, and he used to write for Nation Review, and he shaped an aesthetic where he would write one week about Jesse Winchester, the next week about... Um, Alan Stavell, the next week about Tyrion and Nog, the next week about The Loving Spoonful, and you know, I was just, and that, that and a mad record collector by the name of Stefan Markovich, who still runs uh, a record shop called Sounds Without Frontiers in Hobart, mm. they shaped my early aesthetic, just the two of them, mm. and then to an extent David Pepperell and Keith Glass at Archie and Jughead's uh, in Melbourne when I used to, to go to there, so... No, I was just like fascinated by it. I mean, when my parents asked me what I wanted for an 18th birthday present, I said an air ticket to Melbourne to go and see Fairport Convention, please. Uh, and I saw two shows. Uh, they played matinee and a night show and sat next to Trevor Lucas's um, parents. And uh, this was Sandy Denny mm. era, um, mm. Fairport. So, um, so you know. Was I that just, the first, what was the first big show that sold you on? I mean, you still go out and go to gigs. Yeah, I saw Richard Clapton last night. Yeah, I saw that. (laughs) Um, uh, First show I saw was was The Seekers, which my parents took me to, but then I went to see The Seekers on their 50th anniversary tour. I still found it strangely moving. Mm. Um, Donovan was the first international artist that I saw at the Princess Theatre in Launceston, sitting on a box surrounded by flowers. Wow. Um, Do you know, um, I've just realised... The first international international for me living in New Zealand act I ever saw was the Seekers. The well, Seekers, and I, the same, same. I, but I saw them would have been in the very early nineties, right. and so it was without Judith. Oh, I can't, yes. can't remember the name of the. Um, did Julie Anthony do the? Did she possibly. Possi- I was I was young, and I wasn't there because I wanted to be. No. I was there because my uh, family friend was involved with promoting the gig, and uh, and it was very strange. <laughs> But yeah. I've since, I've since, uh, yeah, I find, I find I've got a lot more time for some of their music now than I did then. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, I still can't work out whether my parents sort of had this sort of, um, you know, nascent feeling that, you know, this was my destiny or that they were just mm. too cheap to get a babysitter that night for my brother and I. <laughs> I, I never, never been able to get to the, the bottom of that one. Uh, but really, the, 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 for me, it was, I mean, I missed the, be- you know, I missed the 50 stuff, of course. I missed, really, the Beatles and, yeah. the, and the beat boom. So the first the first stuff that really impacted me on me, you know, I was a punk rock kid. Mm. You know, I, I went to Adelaide to go to Flinders University um, and, um, you know, and I became, you know, editor of the, you know, it was, everything was a collective in those days, so I was... Uh, edited Empire Times, you know, and we put Johnny Rotten on the cover and we did all that sort of stuff. But it was, it was, you know, Radio Birdman, television, the Sex Pistols, mm. you know, that, the Clash, that, that era of music, a shop called Modern Love Songs in Adelaide. And, 
so there was there was that, and then you know, and, and writing wise, you know, I I had a fanzine because you, you know, if you went in a band, you had to have a fanzine in those yeah. days. So I had Street Fever, then a group of us started Roadrunner uh, after the Jonathan Richmond song, and then at the same time I was freelancing for Ram here in Sydney, Rock Australia mm. magazine, and then Anthony O'Grady offered me a job working at Ram. So I moved here to Sydney at the end of nineteen seventy eight. Um, he had the band The Angels, their road crew, put my worldly possessions in the back of the truck with the Angels gear. Mm. That's how that got from Adelaide to Sydney. And then, look, I've had a charmed lifestyle. And have you been in Sydney ever since? Except for seven years in the yeah. Blue Mountains. Yeah. But, you know, and it was like I arrive in Sydney, you know, my first job is job, you know, is going on the road with Graham Parker and the rumour. Mm. You know, I'm only in Sydney for a short period of time and Tom Waits and I are walking through King's Cross, nattering. <laughs> you know, I'm in a hotel lift with Kiss in Adelaide without their makeup on after there'd been a bomb scare. Mm. You know, I'm having this, like, completely charmed life. OK, I can string a sentence together. You know, I'm not a genius-level journalist, you know, but I can do, you know, but... How did you know you could do that? Like, I guess just to begin went, with, you didn't. You didn't, just did I had it. No idea. I just did it, and people put it in papers. And, and that so, gave you the idea that you could do it because yeah, it existed. Gave, gave yeah, gave me the confidence. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, if someone said, "Oh, well, you know, here's here's your full page on Midnight Oil, or here's something," you know, do you want to go out and you know interview? I was looking at the scrapbooks the other day. Some of the early stuff. You know, I was out at Sydney Airport interviewing Bon Scott and ACDC just before they went to England for the last time and Bon mm. came up, my girlfriend at the time was there and, uh, and I remember him saying to Debbie, you know, is he looking after you because if he's not, I will. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, and I had a great editor in Anthony O'Grady who was an old school editor who, you know, actually taught people how to write, you mm. know, and the, your copy would come back with red lines all over it and scribbled. Yeah. So you're doing record reviews, record reviews, concert reviews, feature, concerts, interviews, features, anything at all. Yeah. And then and then I left, I left Ram. And then look, I, I just had, a, it was the right time. You know, there was there was a it was an era, you know, it was a fantastic era overseas. You know, you're reading, you know, you know Lester Bangs is still alive, mm. Dave Marsh, Robert Christgau, John Landau is still a writer, mm. Nick Kent, Charles Shamari, Nick Toshers, you know, on and Julie on. Julie you know, All of them, all yeah. of these people. Yeah. Um, and in Australia, you know, there was Richard Gilliatt, there was Clinton Walker, there was Andrew McMillan, mm. you know, there was a whole, you know, Jenny Hunter-Brown, Annie Burton, you know, there was a whole coitry of us. And Molly is... Well, Molly was there. Is there? Is I suppose there? It, is yeah. there? Uh, it was. It was a great time. And, and look, I, I worked incredibly hard. I finished up on staff at Ram after a very short period of time. Anthony and I had a falling out over a, a red gum review, um, and then I spent ten years um, at the Sun Herald, which is then the biggest selling paper in the country. And they were just fantastic. I mean, they let me run, you know, my column was, I do columns about John Cale or television mm. or flying nun bands because I was fairly enamoured with what was going on with flying nun. I was in New Zealand a lot in those days and I knew Roger and mm. Roger Shepherd and, and so forth. Um, and so it was just like, I, I was so lucky. And then, you know, I, I also, I you know, became, you know, believe it or not, more famous in this country for my writing for Dolly magazine than anything I've done <laughs> elsewhere you know I'll write all these books about Gadinsky and stuff there'll still be a generation of Australian women who'll go 
Who's the guy who wrote for Dolly? <laughs> it was ridiculous. But, you know, I got to hang out with Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet and Banana Rama and then... Yeah. Uh, but then tell the, the Dolly kids how crap they were. But then I look back at those record reviews and, you know, and I'm writing, you know, five out of five star reviews, you know, for, for the go-betweens and the Johnnies mm. and Steve Earle. And, again, I just got this... Free range to and are you that's sending you around the country and and even around the world? Oh uh, yeah, I mean it was it was the golden age of mm. of also the you know the junket mm. and I you know look and I I guess I had enough clout that I could you know Sony would pay for a trip for instance and I said well I'm going to do you know Warner's things and I'm going to do stuff for other labels you mm. know and again look as I said very very lucky and right place at the right time I mean my favorite ever my favorite ever of those junket trips was, was I was sent over to to see Springsteen it must be the ghost of Tom Joe too I think in Philadelphia mm. but I my, my this, this is the golden 24 hours plus was in Los Angeles on the way back and I I had breakfast at the Shadow Mamont with Iggy Pop <laughs> then I went to Neil Diamond's studio to have lunch with Neil <laughs> and I went back to my room to do a telephone interview with Jeff Buckley who was in New York and I'd missed him in New York then I get a frantic call from the record label from, um, from saying for another record, MCA saying we've been trying to get you all afternoon you're due at Brian Wilson's house at 7 o'clock can you get there I'm going yeah, I can get there. Um, did so you, this did, he, did he have the sandpit? He didn't have the sandpit, but I, uh, it was a fantastic day. I mean, there, there, there was actually a tape recording of me. I'm sitting, there's, there's a, I'm in his living room, there's a white grand piano, and Brian's cuddling a pillow, and I, he says, sit down. And I realise there's no other seats, so I'm literally on the floor mm. looking up at Brian. And at one point I, I, I said to him, I said, well, what are you working on? He said, oh, I'm doing this... Um, cover version of uh, the Queen's Clearwater revival song Proud Mary and he said come here I'll show you and he goes over to the grand piano and I'm literally this is me and Mm. Brian we're sitting on Mm. the piano stool he says put your tape recorder there so it's on the grand piano as he's singing Roland Roland he said if that ever gets out I know where it came from (laughs) and uh, and so uh, and then I think to make it even more surreal I didn't even know who he was, but the next day I went to interview Larry Flint from Hustler Magazine, wow. which in some ways was as spectacular as, yeah, as, yeah. as everything else. <laughs> a on fitting that. climax. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it's been that world wow. of, of being... Um, so do you have, I mean, you've just recalled a couple then, but, um, and, and you mentioned in the Gadinsky book, um, he basically shoulder taps you and says, you're coming back to our room mm. tonight to interview Dylan because you're in Auckland covering the shows, what I assume to generate press for Australia. And is he nervous that, not not to take it back to Gadinsky, but is he a bit nervous about ticket sales for Aussie? No, I don't think he was so much nervous. There there, there may have been, I mean, there must have been some reason Gadinsky doesn't do anything Mm. unless unless they, maybe they didn't need to sell some extra tickets. I mean, he'd taken me over there. Because again, I mean, it's not rocket science, but I was 
probably the first music journalist in this country to cotton onto syndication. Yeah. Uh, and I pitched the idea from Bob Green from the Chicago Tribune, who his writing I always loved. And I was reading something about Bob Green one day that said his column appears in 286 papers in America or something. And I went, mm. hang on, I can do that. <laughs> I, I can do that. So, of course, it became... I could call up record labels and go, hey, you know, you don't have to put blah, blah, blah through a whole day of mm. interviews. You know, just, and I was ambitious. Yeah. I just, I'll talk to him. We can, we can sort that out. You know, it's all right. I can <laughs> get it placed in 10 different places. So, you know, this, so yes, I'm, I'm in New Zealand with Pear, Tom Petty and Dylan, 86. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what uh, was Dylan like? Because you only, you know, because it's not uh, an important part of the story, but I can't tell if the interview is... That, that was a shocker. I've interviewed Dylan twice. Yeah. That was a shocker. Um, Just because he's one of these notoriously he, he tricky subjects. Yeah, he didn't want to do it. Yeah. He, he kept us waiting for about two hours. He, he wanted to go to his room and relax, but he wanted to call his kids. He got really angry with Gadinsky when I put that in my article. Now, I thought that was a really commendable thing to do, to be Bob Dylan and go mm. to your room and call your kids. Mm. Mm. So, but for whatever reason, he really screamed at Gadinsky when He's, I put it yeah, in yeah. my piece. And, yeah. um, and he didn't want to do it. Um, I went up to Gadinsky's room. We may have made a strategical error by I cannot say that Michael Gadinsky has ever taken drugs in my present but uh, I did take an enormous amount of cocaine and um, <laughs> so by the time two o'clock came to go downstairs <laughs> to interview Dylan I was just a little bit wide and um, so we've got Dylan who doesn't want to do the interview Elliot Roberts his manager who I'm as almost as much in awe yeah, as I, I are <laughs> Dylan and I'm going well actually Bob you don't, you don't want to talk yeah. about this chat to Elliot and uh, so and I realised kind of my mistake. Dylan doesn't like Uber fans. So the next time I talked to him, which was mm. only on the phone, but that was a really long, fantastic conversation. And how, when was that? Uh, 92. Right. And, uh, and so I started off trying to ask him things that I thought would get him on side to mm. know that I was... I'm a fan. I'm yeah, not, yeah. I, you know, I tried to ask him about Lenny Bruce. I tried to ask him about Ginsburg. Just things yeah. where I thought, oh, you know... Um, the only, and so the interview lasted like 10 minutes and Elliot's going, look, this is not going to happen. This is not, you know, Bob's mm. not feeling it, but bullshit, bullshit. But um, the best, the, the memorable line I got out of Dylan was, because about a couple of months earlier, he'd been interviewed in Spin magazine in America and, and the journalist had said, if you could go back in time, Bob, what would you have done? He said, I, I'd like to have been a journalist. Mm. And the guy said, well, if you'd been a journalist, who would you have um, liked to have interviewed? And he said, Hank Williams. I thought, okay, all right. And I didn't realise possibly that my slightly heightened state of um, <laughs> pharmaceuticalness was as obvious as it was to Bob Dylan. And um, so I said, hey, Bob, so if Hank Williams was sitting here now, what would you ask Hank Williams? Mm. And he just pinned me for what was probably only 10 seconds of that. And he just looked at me and said, I want to know where he got his drugs from. <laughs> <laughs> it was priceless. And you were in the perfect state to receive <laughs> that he, line. I think yeah, he yeah, knew he exactly that. what was yeah. going on. Yeah. And he was either pissed off that he hadn't got me or I don't know. So, yeah. um, But the next time I spoke to him, I mean, I just came ac across as non-Uber fan. He didn't yeah. remember yeah. the previous interview, or if he did, he didn't let on. And this was one of those ridiculous ones where I couldn't shut him up. 
and suddenly he started going back and he was talking to me about touring in 1966 with the band wow. and all sorts of weird and he's volunteering that he's rereading Shelley and Byron and then there is there's a line on there's an extract on that Brett Whiteley CD because mm. he, he said to me do you know Brett Whiteley and I said kind of sort of and he said oh if you're talking to Brett tell him that you know the drawings he did for me the last time I was at Australia yeah. still look good to me so I went, fuck it. I had one of the more surreal <laughs> conversations of my life. I called up Brett Wiley and I said, Brett, you know, we kind of don't really know each other, but we know people in common. So, Brett, I've just been talking to Bob. <laughs> and Bob <laughs> says to say hello. You know, you don't get to have those sort no. of telephone conversations. <laughs> well, when you, said, when you said you talked to him in 92, I instantly went, geez, that's an interesting time to talk to Dylan because that's, you know, he's sort of like, just starting to go down that path of the reinvention that everyone sort of knows about him now this sort of you know this yeah. kind of old world americana troubadour yeah, but he thing. was but he was getting it really wrong yeah yeah but those were the first steps first towards steps that. to being yeah what he what he has been ever since but he yeah. was he was allegedly drinking really heavily yeah. uh he snubbed Brett Whiteley that night when Brett came right. down um, I had tickets for all of the shows in Sydney I walked out after the first one I didn't see any more of those years yeah. before I went to see Dylan I mean I just went you know maybe I'm the Judas guy on that tour yeah. maybe I'm just a perceptive <laughs> guy just going I don't get I mean he was halfway through Desolation Row before I realised what he was singing wow yeah and they you know I don't think I was the Judas guy because I've always loved anything that Dylan does Mm. Um, but the show, this show was just so bad. Yeah, yeah. So bad. That was the first time, I didn't see that, but that tour came to New Zealand and that was the first time in, in my lifetime that I was aware of him being there and that was, you know, I would have liked to have gone, but um, I heard nothing but bad things about the New Zealand show. It was, so. it was a, I, I'm, they were just, they were shocking on yeah. And, and I heard nothing from, you know, I kept going, have I been really silly, you know, not going, because I was living in Blackheath then, so it was a hike to come down. Mm. And I remember, you know, taking my then wife down, Julie, you know, and, uh, and we were going, and I said, you know, she'd never seen Dylan, you know, and I'd seen the 76 tour, a 78 tour and, uh, in Adelaide and, uh, and the 86 ones, a lot of those shows. And, and I, was, I mean, it was, I was as disappointed for her as much as anything because it was just yeah. so... Oh, and, I, and it was like she's looking at me going, what's, yeah. what's all the fuss about? Yeah, yeah. And so it was some years later, you know, we were in Los Angeles and I, I, had, um, I had tickets for, for Springsteen and the East Trip Band and she brought it up. She, you know, I said, you've got to come and see. I had two tickets and I was there with Paul Kelly. And I said, look, look, guys, I'm going. So, you know, <laughs> Fight it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can, we can alternate. It's going to be a long show. And Paul, to his credit, said, no, no, you go. And But Joe's going, well, you know, I remember what you said about Dylan, and that was shit. You know? <laughs> and she said, I don't really get the Springsteen guy either. But, you know, she was like 10 minutes into it, she was dancing on the seat yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. So yeah. my, my, my artistic judgment was somewhat validated. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you must have just such a, we've had a little bit of it already, but such a laundry list of these uh, people that you've had not just interviews with, but encounters with. But um, who stands out as, I guess, the most exciting, interesting, surprising interview that you've done in a face-to-face? -face. Mm, 
God, that that is actually a hard one. I'm just and, and the moment, or if it's easier, the uh, most diabolical and disappointing. Um, one. Jagger was the most disappointing. Yeah, just because uh, it was boring in it business. It was boring. Yeah. I mean, I, I had to. I, I just got back from from overseas where I'd been on the road with Paul Kelly, and I remember the call came from Virgin and they said, oh, you know, Mick Jagger's doing interviews next week, you know, d- d- the Sun Herald, you know, you mm. can do the only Australian interview. And I said, okay, you know, when's he going to call? I said, no, he's doing them in Paris and we're not paying and you have to be in Paris. So the Sun Herald got me a ticket and so I, I literally flew via London. Well, of course, fucking Jagger had been in London. And um, so, you know, so I fly to Paris and you know, he's, stay, he's got a, he's, this is a funny story, but he's got this, you know, he's in a presidential suite at the George Saint, George V yeah. Hotel, the yeah. most expensive hotel in Paris. And, um, and so I'm the last interview of the day. Jag is just boring, you know, like yeah. I'm 40 minutes into this and, you know, it's great. There's a photo on my fridge of me and Jagger together and, and people don't, and they go, oh, he's taller than I thought. And I go, yeah, he refused to have his photo taken with me till I got a footstool so that he didn't look like such a short ass. Yeah, yeah. So, because he's, uh, and, and the most notable thing about that was I was going then back to America to catch up with Paul. I figured, look, I'm back over here. And, uh, and I said to the guy, Julian Shapiro from, from the record label, I said, it must have been Sonny, it can't have been Virgin. This is Sonny. Uh, and I said to uh, to Julian, I said, oh, you know, can you recommend a cheap hotel um, in Paris that I can stay because I got a flight to to the States tomorrow morning? And he said, oh, Mick's already gone back to London, stay here. So this is my night. <laughs> Julian and I just decided to get married before I left Australia. So I literally, this is my night in Mick Jagger's hotel room. I find myself alone in the presidential <laughs> suite of the George Saint. I did nothing but open up my phone book. I called everyone I knew anywhere in the world going, guess where I am. <laughs> when I get back, Julie and I are getting married. <laughs> Meanwhile, a fridge that was only stocked with very expensive champagne. I literally just lay on the couch for the night, coughing <laughs> champagne, got up in the morning, or well, didn't go to bed. I just like got yeah. went at 6.30, caught my cab and went to the airport. <laughs> I never heard, I forget, you know, that... Well, there's only so much you can drink and only so many things you can make and it's Mick Jagger and it's blah, blah, blah. Uh, so that, but that was probably the most disappointing one. I mean, we, we were down to talking about cricket after about 30 minutes and he yeah. doesn't have a very interesting perspective on cricket. Um, and... Oh, the great ones. Sometimes I think that... Well, have you th- I mean, you know, there's, there's people like, you know, and it sounds really wankerish, but I always, and when you use the word always, it sounds very pretentious, yeah. I always love talking to Iggy Pop because yeah. he's funny, he's smart, he has me laughing hysterically within five minutes. And look, who's not impressed by, you know, Iggy Pop going, oh, good to see you again. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that's not a bad, yeah. you know, conversation. He style. strikes me as someone who, uh, I mean, I've, I've never talked to him, but uh, I've followed his, you know, his career, and he strikes me as someone who, and this might sound like an obvious thing to say, but I think you'll know what I mean. He strikes me as someone who actually sincerely gives a shit about music yeah, still. Yeah, he's passionate. And that doesn't always, isn't always the case. <laughs> totally, totally, <laughs> totally passionate. Yeah. Um, so and follows it too, you know, like as, a, as aware of what's things. Going yeah. on, I did hear the best Iggy Pop story recently, and um, I was talking to someone about Iggy Pop, and they 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 were recounting the time that he went into Triple J, and he had this really young Japanese girlfriend. Mm. Uh, it was Francis Leach was telling me, 
and Francis went up and said before the interview they were together said says to her um, would you like a cup of tea or coffee and she's looking like she doesn't know what's going on mm. Iggy says oh she doesn't speak English and uh, so Francis turns to Iggy and said well can you translate please and Iggy says I don't speak Japanese <laughs> Okay. It's a fairly one-dimensional relationship. Immediately you go, exactly, <laughs> yeah. I know the, where, how this relationship yeah. operates. Yeah. Um, Horizontal. I, I've always, I always remember interviewing Sting, who I can't stand, and I was, again, the last interview... You mean you can't stand his music? You can't stand his music. Yeah. Um, yeah, I liked some of the police. Yeah. And... Um, and so, youthful arrogance on the last interview. I know he's been doing it all day. I fundamentally don't give a shit. I walked into his <laughs> hotel room because you know Sting was at the height of his. You know, I'm a I'm a deep thinker. You yeah. know, I'm a fucking intellectual. And I thought I just really don't. I, Which I think is what most people hate about him, probably yeah, more than like, his music. Well, actually, his music, it? yeah. yeah. And, and I think. Or I'd, it informs the hatred of the music. And I'd probably been in the Siebel Townhouse bar for a little while, you know. <laughs> and uh, so waiting for this interview. So I, I walked in and I thought, who cares? Uh, and I, I just walked in. I said, Sting, hey, how you doing? Uh, what's your favourite colour? He spent forty-five minutes telling me why it was black. It was fantastic. <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic. I had the best story. <laughs> Sting on black. You know. <laughs> and I got, I mean, again, it was this fluky, yeah. weird, weird shit where I got stuff that... And one day that wouldn't have worked at all. Uh, if, if I'd got him know. in another mood, yeah. you know, it would have been sort of, you know, out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... And then you must have found, too, um, that sometimes... Well, that's an example, but sometimes the people that you, for whatever reason figure it's not going to be a great interview end up giving giving a really good yeah, one some, either you're not that into them or you you worry that they're a really prickly yeah sometimes you just um and you just happen to get it right yeah i got very lucky with lou reed yeah well that's a notorious um, example isn't it yeah and this was only on the phone but i was mm. you know I, I could think marion faithful scared me when i had to interview her around the time of broken english mm. lou i was very nervous about and of course i did the classic journalist trick of trying to let him know that I'm not a fuckwit you mm, know so mm. I'm talking about the Czech president Hakal Vakal yeah, yeah. I'm asking and he's just going you know he's just shut down already I could sense this he doesn't well, I talked so about, when's this is this like uh, early 90s late 80s 90s we yeah. toured with him with the gurus on yeah. the new sensations tour but I hadn't met him yeah um, I'm trying to think what the reason for the release was. Maybe it was New York time. It yeah. feels like around New York. Yeah. Uh, and I asked him about um, Paul Oster. Mm. Yeah, you're going to have to ask Paul. And I go, great. Well, he's not on the phone, Lou. Yeah, and so it's kind of, and I, I just, it's going nowhere. Mm. And then I just, oh, I can, I can date it. It's Bob Dylan's 30th anniversary oh, yeah, concert yeah. time. Because I go, okay. I said, you know, you know so you, you recently performed at Dylan's 30th anniversary celebration at Madison Square Garden. You know, I said, How, what was it like, you know, having Booker T and the MGs as your backing band? Mm. And it was just like light goes on. Yeah. Man, you know, I got ducked down on my left, Booker T on my right, blah, blah, blah. And I went, okay, penny drops for me. He doesn't want to be intellectual, Lou. He yeah. wants to talk about music. Yeah. So we did our allocated time and he actually said, hey, keep talking. Go, 
you know. And yeah. then five minutes later, I heard him on the phone with Jen Aldershaw on Triple J, just tearing her apart. Yeah, he, right. You know, he, he, the happy pills had worn off very quickly. Yeah, well, you just got him at the right, like, just, the right and thing. And that's, that's the case in point yeah. Of, yeah. of being uh, lucky. Well, someone, someone said to me once, um, on a, on a, a while ago, that to get a good interview out of someone, you have to kind of, the sort of paradox or irony of it is is that you kind of have to already know everything about them yeah. to begin with. Do you, do you think there's some truth in that? Oh, you have to know a lot about them. Yeah. You know, I think, but then you're hoping that you're going to find some stuff out that, you know, that you don't know. I mean, I've always worked on the principle that y- you, you've got about two or three minutes to establish that you're different from everybody else. Yeah. And that you actually have respect for them, that you know your subject and, and you know them and you're affectionate about what you do. And what they're pushing and why, yeah, product-wise. And, and yeah. Th- yeah, and then, and then you're trying to gently lead them. The other thing I've always said to people is never take questions into an interview. I mean, I, I, I've never prepared, or rarely have I prepared... Yeah. I have in my mental process tells me that I have if I'm in deep shit um, does the songwriting get more or less difficult as you get older yeah are you ever tempted to go back and revisit your yeah. songs <laughs> you know um, you know so she's nuts <laughs> yeah I, I've yeah. got some okay and which will give me enough breathing space to think of something interesting yeah um, or but, to start up another conversation yeah, but, but otherwise you just like and, and I I also learned over the years to try and not get the try and get them away from talking about music because that's usually the least interesting thing that they've got to talk yeah. about, and the thing that's least interesting to them. And I, I remember um, once Annie Burton, who's now passed away many years ago, but um, great Australian mm. music writer, and she was a bit of a mentor for me. And I, I remember once early on, and uh, she she said uh, she said something like she told me two things. She said, "Always write like you talk." She said, never, never stop writing like you talk. And she said, you're going to be really good in this business or at this caper. And I said, why? She said, you've got really good eyes. And I thought she was trying to chat me out. Yeah. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, you hardly ever look at anybody in the eye. She said, I've been in interviews with you. You walk into a room and you're, you're, you're seeing what record they've played last, mm. what book is by the bedside in their hotel room. Yeah you know what t-shirt they've been wearing and uh, it's interesting and, and as you would find that gives you color yeah and also gives you a jumping off point yeah 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 but um so you know it's uh, it's never been anything less than so let's um, well, well let's um conclude a little bit then with um how you get from there to laughing outlaw and i guess the last sort of what 10 15 years have been the books and scattered in between that the record label yeah i mean i i've always look i i i i, I can probably relate to gudinski because my attention span is not as as scattered as his but i like i've always liked i don't have a musical bone in my body but i've always i mean you know as well as this stuff i mean you know i've spent 13 years broadcasting on fbi mm. two years on two i do stuff on radio national you know, I worked as, you know, I was the Clash's publicist when they came to Australia. You know, I worked with the Cramps when they first came to Australia. And Deso Hoffman, who was the Beatles photographer for all those great 
60s photographs. So I've done publicity work, you know, I was a tour promoter, I and mean, then I bought Harry Dean Stanton, James Elroy, Link Ray, Dick Dale, Roseanne Cash, Guy Clark, Chris Whitley, Ted Hawkins, Roseanne Cash, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Dave Alvin. Who else do we do? Uh, to now, Australia. Just that list of people, <laughs> though, what that says to well, what I already know about you, but what that says, I think, is that um, you are in this primarily f- for passion and oh, interest. Absolutely. Um, and that even though there's a nice sort of, you could imagine all those artists you just named on a playlist, um, and a fantastic playlist, but you have really good, eclectic wide-ranging taste which i know from your facebook posts yeah i mean i I I mean you know i always said very early on and i'm sure i probably didn't even think it up i probably pinched it from somebody else but um i always said look there's nothing wrong with loving abba and hank williams at the same time Mm, mm. and i don't you're right with facebook i mean facebook is 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 because I, I feel absolutely no desire to fudge on any of this stuff. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, some people called me up when I was playing 1970s Bee Gees records. I'm going, well, I've never listened to them. So, you know, I'm listening to them because I'm curious to know if they're any good or mm. not. And mm. um, so whenever I put up stuff on Facebook, you know, that is literally what I'm listening to yeah, yeah. at the time. So it's a little running diary yeah. of things. But, yeah, look, I just, you know, of course, you know, I, I do... I do love it, and and I, you know, you know, I, I've also spent a lot of time writing. You know, I had a magazine called Mean Streets devoted to crime, and I spent, you know, people don't know, but I spent seventeen years as the crime fiction reviewer for the Sydney Morning Herald, and I have a over there is a Ned Kelly. Well, there's the thing, yep. a lifetime achievement award for for cri- contributions to crime fiction. Uh, I can't write crime fiction, but I know a lot about it, and I can yep. write about it. Yeah. And some of the best conversations I've had probably have been with you know, crime writers and other writers. Um, but, um, yeah, I just, I, and, and, and that's, again, I... Like yeah, I was going to say, you're a, you're a uh, I also know, I mean, I know from sitting here looking at these books, but you're a, a, a pretty wide-ranging, voracious reader. I wish I had more time to read. I, yeah. You know, I wish I could finish books as opposed to reading lots of, bits, bits, of, of, bits yeah. of lots of them. Yeah, but, um, it you seems know, to be I the mean, way now, though. Well, I'm it's, like that. it's frustrating, you know, I'm loving the Burt Burns book at the moment, but I haven't been able to pick it up for, for a week. You yeah. Know. Um, but the, I guess that's something going back to Gadinsky... I seriously hope I never lose that enthusiasm. I mean, mm. you know, like in the same way as I'm saying that he hadn't, hasn't read the memo about not being 14. I mean, fuck, I hope I never stop mm. feeling like the 14-year-old mm. kid who's just got, you know, the new, you know, the, the first Jimi Hendrix. You know, I'm, I'm, again, there are certain good things about being old in the, you know, I know what it was like to buy Jimi Hendrix records when they came out. Yeah, yeah. And Doors records and things like that, even though I'm not a huge Doors fan. Uh, but I, um, I, you know, I, I, I increasingly find that there are less and less people of my age that I can talk to. Yeah. Because they stop listening. Yeah. And I always say that if I don't, you know, I listen, if I, I, I said now is the best time to be a music fan ever and I can speak as someone who was a music fan in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s because there was 
arguably not to diminish in any way the significance of the people that were around in the 60s, 70s yeah. and 80s, there's probably more great music being made now yeah. than ever yeah. at any time. Every year for the last probably four or five years, my best albums of the year list is, is longer and I find yeah. myself trying to work through reviewing more albums uh, across more styles you know there's there's more thing there's there's just more yeah. of everything which which you know people can decide is a is a great curse but it's all it's always about finding the gem within that right, and there are more fan. gems you know it's like fantastic. there's more stuff to yeah, unearth i mean how bad how bad are our lives yeah you know people say oh you must get tired of it i go hello yeah, I spend my entire life listening to music, reading books, talking to interesting people, writing about it, and writing about it. I mean, please tell me, and, tell me what's not, and being on Facebook. Yeah, and, and which is all of those things. All of those things, yeah. you know, because I always try even with Facebook. I kind of treat it as mm. mini vignettes of journalism, and yeah. just trying to say, well, you know, you, you, you rarely see photos of cats or occasionally, yeah, yeah. I, occasionally I'll do food. But the, well, yours is an interesting page to me because um, I mean, obviously, I'm interested in the many of the same things that you're yeah. interested in a, a similar sort of um, focus in my life but um, exactly what you said it reads like a bit of a daily diary or a weekly mm. journal and I can sometimes find myself which I don't do with many people's Facebook pages I can actually go t- directly to your page yeah. rather than just when it pops up in my feed and catch back up on a, yeah. a bunch of activities yeah and no, I, I have fun yeah. with it but I yeah. always go you know before I post anything, you know, is this going to either amuse, entertain, or educate you know, and uh, like at least five hundred people? Yeah, people, yeah. You, know, you will not find me putting up a post on Facebook saying Stuart's unhappy; his train was late. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean anything to Stuart anyone. Stuart is yeah. not <laughs> feeling well today. Yeah. Stuart has a bad... A Although, <laughs> Stuart has a fever and Michael Gadinsky just called. Would have been a good one. Oh, yeah, if you, you, if you, if you can do that. Yeah, yeah, you know, if that's you, if okay. you can mix them up, you know. <laughs> and he doesn't know what yeah, caused yeah. the most delirium. <laughs> yeah, no, and I miss my train, but I just found this fantastic thing on the street. Yeah. Um, you know, that, yeah. that becomes that becomes interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, um, you know, I think, I think the book, I feel like the book would have been a great book, um probably anyway because of the subject you know you have to include the fact that you've put the book together so well you've told these these this important story and you've managed to kind of thread these sort of separate vestiges together and i like the fact that you know you had to put yourself in the book because you you are you know you have this direct involvement sometimes indirect but you've been there across the decades with him yeah, and I think, look, you know, that that's part of that. It sort era. of authenticates the story in a way to yeah, me. Yeah, and it, it, look, I mean, the other thing about the the era of journalism that I came from, you know, I, I was thinking about it the other day and I, I was saying to, to someone, I said, look, and I hadn't thought of it for a long time, I said there was not one of us that was writing in that era who didn't have a copy of the new journalism within reach. Yeah, yeah. And yes, we were so heavily influenced by all of those writers, and we were part, and we were yeah. part of the story. And their influences, the yeah, Beats and Bukowski, totally, and totally. That was, those that was, sorts of things. That was the yeah. defining book for all of us. Yeah. That we could we could tell the story of other people by also telling what we were doing. Yeah. And and I'd forgotten, you know, I was going, oh yeah, there was all this great music writing, and I went, no, nah, no, nah. even those great music writers, everybody had read the new journalism. Yeah. 
You know, everybody, yeah. that was the Bible. That's that probably one of the few things I feel very pleased about going to university for, because that's actually how yeah, I, exactly. I came across that book yeah, through, no, a, exactly. through a course. But, you know, it's one of the books from university I've retained and it's well thumbed. Yeah, yeah. You know? Now I want to find out where I've put my <laughs> You're scanning the shelves. <laughs> it's probably in storage yeah. Oh, well, it's been a great pleasure talking oh, to you, and, you and, 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 and best of continued success, I would say, luck with the book. And, um, and hopefully it's not another 10 years between them. <laughs> I, I hope not too. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you.